Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Tell Me Darling. I'm very excited to be here today. What about you, Phil? I'm very excited. I am Jess and this is my husband, Phil. Hello. And I am going to be telling him a true crime story and he's going to react to it. Basically, that's what happens here. How are you feeling after last week? Yeah, good. Last week was last week was full on. I was really, I was really interested in until I found out what happened, and I was like, I quit. I don't want to do this show anymore. Yeah, I went in with a bang. Started um, off with a good one. But I'm back for more. Well, it's just it's it's more like a history lesson, if anything. It's Australian yeah. history. It's um, it's like watching, listening to a documentary. In a way. Yeah, I guess. No. <laughs> I guess. I just meant because it was an Australian, yeah. you know, history. That's where we live. Anyway, we've had a bit of a week, haven't we? Yesterday, we had someone out to look at our roof because it's leaking. And then last night, our tap started leaking. Whose fault was that? Fucking your fault for buying a 20-year-old house. <laughs> no one told me that this is what owning a house would be like. That we just have, There's just always something to fix, isn't there? There's yeah. always something to do. Always something to fix. I love it. Like, we've done so much to our home, if you don't follow us on our socials. But all of this is new. So, today's case is we're sticking on brand with our Australian theme. Mm -hmm. But this time we're going down... Well, this one's kind of mixed. We're going to Adelaide and we're also going to the Northern Territory. Okay. It's a bit of a mix. All right. Are you ready? Tell me, darling. Tell me, darling. <laughs> Good one. Should I just get into it? That's, yeah. Okay. No banter today? No. <laughs> no banter. He's not in the mood today. He's a bit cranky, if I'm no, honest. No. I'm surprised he's here. No, I'm not. Okay. Drink your coffee. Warm up. Are you ready? Yep. In 1957, so we're going back. Okay. 44-year-old Sally... Her real name was Thyra, but she liked to be called Sally. So How do you gonna, spell Thyra? T-H-Y-R-A. Thyra. 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 But we're going to call her Sally. All right. Bowman and her husband, Pete Bowman, lived in Adelaide, South Australia with their two daughters, Marion and Wendy. Pete had a brother named Brian who recently purchased a new property in the Northern Territory of Australia, but after a few months of drought and hardship, he reached out to Pete for help. He made a proposal to the family to move to the Northern Territory and help run the Glen Helen Station, and the Bowmans agreed it was a great opportunity to live and work close to home so that they could be there for their girls. Their oldest daughter, 16-year-old Marion, suffered from a rare condition called encephalitis, which is an infection that causes the brain to swell. So due to this condition, Marion had a lot of neurological damage and required around-the-clock care, which limited her parents' opportunities for work. So this was a perfect opportunity for them to work close and live mm. close to each other. On the other hand, their youngest daughter, 14-year-old Wendy, was very independent. She was athletic, she loved the outdoors, and considered herself a highly religious person. She was very close to her dad and was particularly fond of the two dogs that they had, which was a blue healer and a corgi cross, who went everywhere with her. In the winter of 1957, the Bowmans, along with their two dogs, made the 15,000-kilometre move from South Australia to start working at Glen Helen Station. Initially, the family struggled a lot in their new home as the station was very remote. Unlike Adelaide, where they had friends and neighbours to socialise with, 
In their new home, the closest property was hundreds of kilometres away. To make matters worse, there had been a drought in the area the year prior, making the conditions at the station even harder to adjust to. The dry landscape in the Northern Territory was a far cry from the lush seasons in Adelaide, and Sally and Pete questioned whether they had made the right choice for their family. I don't know about you, but I couldn't think of anything worse than moving to the outback Northern Territory. For mm. one, the flies, there's one fly buzzing around in our house right now and my eyes switching. But like, I swear when you're there, it, there's just like hundreds of flies on you all the time. Yeah. It would be so hot. There's like no trees. It's just like red dirt and sand. Like this is where they've moved to. Like okay. they've gone from the city in Adelaide. Yeah. So imagine Brisbane city to the outback. Mm. Yeah, screw that. Like imagine with like that with kids, no one's around them. Like everyone lives kilometers away, so they've got like no friends, no family, like no babysitters. Yeah. That's what I'm hearing. No babysitters. But they don't need babysitters because they got nothing to do. <laughs> well, they still got to work the station, so there's yeah. like cattle and stuff there. Yeah, that's what they're taking care of. They're basically mm-hmm. farming. Yeah, in a drought, which is even harder. Mm-hmm. So it's hard work. It's long days. It's hot in the Northern Territory. It's not for me. No. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> a short reprieve for the family came in November 1957 when 22-year-old Thomas Whelan visited the family. Who's he? Thomas had worked with Pete back when the family lived in Adelaide and the two had become close friends despite the differences in their age. Yeah, so, so Pete's 22. Tom? No, Thomas is 22. How Pete's old's, older. How old's Pete? I don't know. Well, he's got, so he's got a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old. So what, he's at least Did late 30s? Did start of the story? Early 40s? 44. They're 40s. Early 40s. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Um, so yeah, so Thomas, they worked together in Adelaide. They became friends and he came up in November to visit. Okay. And help out for three weeks on the station. I don't like the sound of this guy. Okay. <laughs> he's us already. He's done it. <laughs> Whatever done it is, he's Guilty. done it. Guilty. All right. <laughs> So when Thomas visited, he agreed to stay with the family for three weeks and then return back to Adelaide with the Bowmans, who had decided to drive back for the Christmas break. So okay. he planned to go there to work for three weeks. Mm-hmm. And then when he was coming home, they were all going to drive back together. Okay. So they were only going back to Adelaide for Christmas, Christmas. break. Okay. Yeah. On Tuesday, the 3rd of December, 1957, the Bowmans, along with Thomas and their two dogs, began the long car ride back to Adelaide, starting with a visit to Alice Springs. They were all excited about their holiday and the chance to finally have a break from the taxing conditions in the Northern Territory. I heard that. They were travelling in a black standard Vanguard, which was a simple vehicle with none of the luxuries we are accustomed to today. Mm. With five adults and two dogs, the journey was far from comfortable. And what year was this? 1957. So Damn. I, they didn't have aircon then, surely, right? No, they, what the, what were they? I swear they still had horses and... <laughs> horses and carriage. <laughs> no, they had those cool cars like that we think are cool today. Oh, there's a fly. Yeah, but it's a long drive in one of them. With five people, there was no seven-seaters back then. Mm. You know, they're probably a lot smaller build. Yep. And again, no air con. Like, I'm coming back to that. Driving What's, through... What type of car was it? A Vanguard. A Vanguard? Yeah. Like, what brand is that? Was that the brand of it? Um, the model? The make, the model, the year? I want to suss this out. I want to look it up. Look it up right now so you can see a picture. 
So when they arrived in Alice Springs, the family decided that continuing the long journey back to Adelaide with all five of them, plus the two dogs, was going to be terribly uncomfortable. So they decided to separate into two groups for the rest of the journey. So Sally and Wendy would travel by car with Thomas, the friend, uh-huh. and the two dogs. So while- he, he had his own car, did he? No, he flew up and he was going to drive back. So they're driving the family car. Okay, yep. And Pete and Marion, which is the eldest daughter with the disability, yep. would catch a flight from uh, flight back to Adelaide. So they would fly back and okay. the other three would drive the car so back. So dad and dogs. oldest daughter are going to fly back. Yeah. Mum and youngest daughter are going with this Pete guy. Thomas. Thomas guy, all right. Pete is the dad. Yeah. Yep. Um, so that night, the group stayed together in Alice Springs before parting ways the following morning, leaving Pete and Marion behind to wait for their flight. Sally, Thomas and Wendy set out on their long road trip to Adelaide with 85 pounds in cash, which isn't much. I wonder, what's that work out to be now? You can work that out. I'll work that out as well. Okay. Um, there's no communication. They wouldn't have been able to know. No mobile phones, yeah, no nothing. Where they're at, how yeah. they're going. That was magic. Could you imagine you trying to like... With no communication until you got to that spot to try and I would be on that plane. I wouldn't be driving back. Yeah. I'd be on the plane. Um, But also just like not having a a nav. Yeah. Maps. What'd they listen to? They would have had radio back then. All the way out there. I don't know. They had radio and they had the good old Refidex maybe. The Refidex. Not the Refidex. That big book where you have to like line the numbers up. Mm. That's vintage. Now, they set off on their journey driving southbound on Route 87, which is known as the Stewart Highway. Sometime that afternoon, they pulled into the cool Gura homestead to refuel and have a bite to eat before continuing to the boundary between the states of the Northern Territory and South Australia. As the sun dipped down over the horizon, they decided to pull over on the side of the road and set up camp for the night. It's important to know that this was not uncommon in Australia at the time. Lots of people did this. Given the extremely long distances between towns, it wasn't unusual to see travellers pulled over to the side of the road to rest for the night before setting off again during daylight hours. Mm -hmm. The spot Thomas and Sally chose to pull over had some light tree coverage, which was perfect for a bit of protection from the element elements it was also close enough for them to see the road and be seen from it that particular part of the highway ran through the abandoned sundown station which had been empty for a number of years thomas and sally was the sundown station just like a service station or was Um, it like a like a hotel motel um, i don't know sorry Thomas and Sally had come well equipped for a roadside stay with a canvas swag and supplies for cooking by fire. Thomas and Sally were all acquainted with the outdoors and weren't naive to the dangers of the wildlife which roam Australia, Mm. which I think everyone knows that Australia has some of the most dangerous animals in the world, which is why we're all so strong. (laughs) But given that they had two dogs with them, they felt confident that the dogs would alert them if anything untoward came their way. And besides all that, Wendy had also brought along her Remington 22 rifle, which she had become very skilled at using since moving to the station. Mm -hmm. Once the trio had settled in and made themselves as comfortable as possible, they lit a fire and brewed some tea. By then it was dark and they turned in for the night to get some much needed sleep in preparation for another long day of traveling the following morning. What time was, did Pete and the oldest daughter get on the plane the same day that they, they took off? No. So where's Pete and Thingy during this time? Um, so they stayed in Alice Springs yes. for one more night. Okay, so, so they would have been taken off the morning the that they're day. about yeah. to 
wake up and take off. Yeah. So on the 5th of December, Pete and Marion touched down in Adelaide. Mm -hmm. They were expecting the rest of the family and Thomas to arrive on the 6th. But when they didn't show up that day, Pete wasn't too concerned. Given how far the group had to travel and the condition of the vehicle, he assumed that they might have had some car trouble and decided to stay out on the road an extra night. But the following day, on the 7th of December, he prepared a large meal to welcome the group back from their long drive. But when they hadn't shown up by that evening, Pete began to worry. In the days before cell phones and the internet, he hadn't expected to hear from his wife, but if something had happened to them along the way, they would surely have come across a phone that they could contact him by on to inform him of the delay. Mm. With no sign of them, by nightfall, Pete contacted the police to report their disappearances. She, mm. all right, so they took off on what date in the car? The, the fourth? The last time he seen them was the third. Fourth was the fourth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then, all right. So it's been a couple of days since they started their journey. They Last we know, they pulled over for the night to start camp on their first night of driving. Second. Yeah. Oh, they, oh so they drove, where'd they stay the first night while driving? They all stayed in Alice. So they all got to Alice Springs. Okay. And all drove. Yeah. So they left on the December the 3rd. Yeah. Drove to Alice Springs and then. That's what I mean. Their first full day of this um, Tommy Guy. The fourth. And his wife, and old mate, Pete's wife. That was the fourth. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So then um, Pete and Marion left on the fifth. Yep. And landed on the fifth. Yep. They took a plane. The police took Pete's concern seriously right away. They mm-hmm. contacted authorities all along the highway from Alice Springs to Adelaide as they had no idea where the family might have stopped or gotten into trouble. Details of the group. Uh, Sorry. Details of the group as well as the dogs and the car were communicated far and wide. Within hours, the Royal Australian Flying Service, a service dedicated to providing emergency and health care for those who live in remote and rural regions, began their search for Sally, Wendy and Thomas. Much respect to them. We still have that. I know. I'm saying good on them. It's called something different now though, right? The Flying Royal Doctor Service? Something something like like that. that. Yeah. Heroes. Word of the disappearance spread quickly through the small settlements along the highway and it didn't take long before the owners of Kilgara Station heard about the case. They recalled having served the trio in the black van card on the 5th of December Mm -hmm. and they notified authorities that all had seemed well when they saw the travellers. The group had stopped for fuel and had enjoyed some cold refreshments before setting back out on their journey. So... I was wrong back then. They settled in on the 5th that night. Yeah, Yeah. not the 4th. This was the first break in the case and the sighting helped to narrow down the search area. By then, the police had initiated a huge ground search for the family with community members and workers from the properties around the region coming together to help. The police even set up roadblocks between Alice Springs and South Augusta so that they could question motorists about any sightings of the missing group. On the 10th of December, The Advisor, which was a local newspaper in Adelaide, ran the story of the missing trio which made the front page. This led to their disappearance becoming headline news which helped the case gain traction across Australia. So like back then, we didn't have Google. We didn't have the yeah. internet. We didn't have Facebook. We didn't have Amber Alerts. So, <coughs> we didn't sorry. have Find My. We didn't have Find My Friends, <laughs> no. So newspapers was really the only way like to get stories out there yeah. and then the and, news as well but maybe, yeah 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 it's scary yeah not just not knowing and like back then like front page news that was like 
big a news. big deal. It's yeah. not like today where we just throw out news articles every 10 mm. minutes. Like it was a big deal. But even with the headline coverage, the search turned up nothing and the authorities were perplexed as to how three people, two dogs and a car could go missing without a trace along one of one stretch of road uh, and one that's incredibly remote. And they've searched this road like to see there's no car broken down there and the bodies aren't just lying ground on the ground somewhere between here and there. Like have they it actually is, properly searched that? I know it's big. It's a big stretch of road, yep. huge. So they're searching, but okay. you can, you know, it's... They didn't have Take, yeah. what we have today, mm-hmm. like infrared lighting and things, helicopters and things like that, I don't think. Well, they had the flying doctors. Yeah, but not helicopters where they can just fly low. They had like the planes, but as I said, it's like a big stretch of road. Okay. It's yep. very long. So eight days after the initial launch of the search parties, a RAAF four-engine Lincoln bomber was called in to do a low-altitude sweep of the area where uh-huh. authorities thought the family might have been driven through. During this flight, an observer on board spotted a vehicle parked at a strange angle in some bush to the side of the road. They reported the finding and a road crew was sent to search the coordinates more closely. So that's like another thing as well, like with like the planes and stuff. It's not like when we have like all the digital stuff and we can just like pinpoint where it is. Like they're Mm. still like on paper and pen, like mapping out where they are and like crossing Mm. where they've looked and stuff. So it makes the search a lot harder. They reported the finding and a road crew was sent to search the coordinates. Sure enough, they confirmed that the vehicle was the Vanguard that Sally, Wendy and Thomas were known to have been travelling in. The vehicle was found partially hidden under a clump of trees at the deserted Sundown Station in the northernmost part of South Australia. So they made it over the border. Northernmost part of, of where? South, South Australia. Australia. Okay, so, so they were close. They were just over the border. Yeah, they made it over the border. Um, and the Sundown, that was that abandoned place, was it? Yeah, Sundown where they Station. Had- didn't they go past there to camp? Well, that's where they... You mentioned that earlier. Yeah, but this is just where the car was okay. found. Yep. So after confirming that this was the vehicle that they all had been looking for, officials from Alice Springs travelled to the site and began their investigation. What they found gave them more questions than answers. The vehicle was fully intact and it was completely empty. The only sign that something upward up toward had happened was a small pool of blood in the back of the car and a smear of blood inside one of the front doors. They also noticed that an area around the driver's seat looked like it had been washed inside and out and there was no signs of Thomas, Sally, Wendy or the two dogs. What about luggage? Completely empty, nothing. Mm. So what happened to them and where are they? Given... Yeah, that's the question. Given the location of the vehicle, it was determined that the jurisdiction of the vehicle belonged to South Australian authorities. They decided to bring in a group of local Aboriginal trackers who knew the lands like the back of their hands, given that their ancestors had roamed the area for thousands of years before Europeans had arrived. On the 13th of December, the Aboriginal trackers began looking around the surrounding areas and found two distinct set of footprints. The first pair looked like it belonged to a woman and it was an Australian size three and a half or four. The footprints led from where the Vanguard was found to the side of the main road. The other set were thought to belong to a man in Australia size seven or eight. These prints led down from the road to the Vanguard and then back again. The trackers also identified that the man who had left these footprints behind was inclined to be pigeon-toed on the left foot. Wow, that's crazy. That's so crazy, right? The same set of men's footprints also led from the front of the car towards a shrubbed, a shrubbed area. 
about 300 yards from the road. Mm -hmm. The trackers followed these footprints and behind the shrub, they made their grim discovery under a canvas tarpaulin, which was... Tarp? Like tarpaulin? Is that just a tarp? I think that's a fancy word for tarp. Yeah, Yeah, a canvas one. They, They didn't have like the plastic ones that we have back then, which was covered in branches they found the bodies of Sally Bowman, Wendy Bowman, and Thomas Whelan. Mm-hmm. All of the bodies had severe blunt force trauma to their heads and upper bodies, and they had all been shot in the head with a twenty-two rifle. Wendy had been shot once, Sally had been shot twice, and Thomas had been shot three times. They were found without their shoes or stockings. The bodies were rapidly decaying in the dry heat of the area and this was made worse by the fact that the blankets had been placed on top of their bodies under the canvas. Investigators also found drag marks and patches of dried blood around the extinguished campfire that the trio had lit. Following the drag marks, police were led to an area ground that had recently been disturbed and eventually they found the bodies of the Bowman's two dogs, both of which had been shot. Man. I know, that's sad, right? The spent cartridges of the 22 bullets were found at the trio's campsite back towards the road. The campsite also showed traces of blood as well as footprints, which didn't appear to belong to any of the victims. Wendy's rifle was found underneath Thomas's dead body. It was loaded, but the stock had been broken and it had not been fired. Mm-hmm. The family had been killed by someone else's gun. Yep. Mm-hmm. So Pete Bowman was informed of his wife and daughter's deaths and his brother Brian was called by police to formally identify the bodies. Brian had the grim task of confirming that the bodies were indeed those of Sally Bowman, Wendy Bowman and their family friend Thomas Whelan. With the formal identification done, the bodies were released for autopsy. It was determined that Thomas Whelan had been shot three times all from behind. So you remember this. Yeah. He was found to have fracture wounds on his forehead as well as across the front of his face. It was theorized that Thomas had been hit twice, once in the head and then in the face with the buff of a rifle before he was shot. Mm. Sally was found to have been shot once in the back of the neck. She also had several fractures to the right side of her head, just like with Thomas. Her fractures were believed to be, have been inflicted by the butt of a rifle. And as for Wendy, she was found to have suffered blows to the side of her head, to the left side of her head, possibly caused by the same rifle. She had been shot prior to being battered by the rifle, which caused her skull to fracture. The authorities immediately suspected the group had been killed in a robbery gone wrong. Yeah. Thomas's gold watch was missing from his wrist, and some of the cash that they had with them was gone, but other valuables like Sally's diamond ring and money, which was clearly visible in her handbag, were still there untouched. Okay. And there were plenty there was plenty of evidence to indicate this scenario. Firstly, there was the car. When investigators looked a little closer, they noticed that the interior and the exterior of the vehicle looked like they had been wiped down. Someone had tried to clean up after themselves. Then there was the fact that the trackers had observed another set of tire marks near the vanguard that appeared to be heading in the direction of Alice Springs. The tracker, Noel Coughlin, noted that the the imprint had been of a four-wheeled vehicle that was towing along a two-wheeled vehicle struggling with that word in other words a car towing a caravan yeah the tracks had been left during the same time period as the vanguard had been there as tracks went over the top of the vanguard imprints if that makes sense Mm -hmm. 
As word of the murders spread, a middle-aged couple remembered what they had seen that night. The old fields had been travelling in the opposite direction to the Bowmans. They had noticed the group's little campsite set up not far from the sundown station. The old fields had driven past the trio when they noticed a vehicle towing a small caravan pulled over just a third of a mile up the road. It was facing the same direction the couple were travelling, northbound. The Oldfields remember seeing a woman in her 30s playing with a young child outside the caravan. They had thought nothing of what they had seen until they heard about the murders. This was to be the first break in the case. On the 22nd of December, Wendy, Thomas and Sally were laid to rest at the Centennial Park Cemetery in Adelaide. Sally and Wendy Bowman were buried privately with a handful of close friends and family in attendance, but more than 150 people, most of whom were young men, attended the burial of Thomas Whelan after a requiem mass at the Church of Holy Cross, Goodwood. Damn, I was wrong about him. You were really wrong about him, which is really sad. He went up there to help help. out his friend and then, you know, this tragedy. And it's right before Christmas. Mm. It's the 22nd of December that their funerals were. The day prior, Pete Bowman's brother Brian had announced a £4,500 reward to anyone who could offer any information that could lead to the capture and conviction of the murder of his sister-in-law and niece. Which probably doesn't sound like much now, but that I think back then was a lot of money. I'm just do we even do we go by pound back then, or do we? When did we change to the A? Of course, they went by pound. That's why I'm saying it. So. Um, the reward was $4,500 back in 1957. Mm-hmm. Today would be worth $48,000. Okay. 48500 with inflation. Yeah. So that's a lot of money like back then. Yeah. After receiving the reports from the old fields, officials dedicated all their efforts to identifying the woman and child travelling north in the caravan that night. Mm-hmm. They couldn't confirm if they were involved in the murders, but they knew that identifying them would give them more answers about what happened that night, or yeah. at least they hoped. The, they expanded their search area in the hopes of finding some evidence of the killer. Within days, they found charred remains of some men's clothing near a campfire, 21 miles north of the murder site. They suspected the items might have belonged to the murderer, who was once again trying to conceal what they had done. Police also received reports from witnesses who had seen a grey Ford Zephyr towing a green trailer which had been travelling north towards Alice Springs around the same time of the murders. The the same car had also been seen east of Tennant Creek, one of the larger towns located on Route 87 in the Northern Territory. Two men came forward to the police to say that they had met a man who was travelling with his wife and child Mm -hmm. in a caravan on the 4th of December. The man was chatting and friendly, but he told them that he needed cash after losing his employment on a wheat farm in South Australia. The man attempted to sell them a handgun and a .22 rifle, but neither of them was interested in the weapons and they parted ways after a friendly conversation. They recalled that the man had identified himself as Raymond Bailey. That was the only real lead investigators had in this case. In a country as large as Australia, Raymond could be anywhere by then and besides he might not even be involved in the case at all. Hmm. It wasn't until the 22nd of January 1958, so the following year, more than six weeks after the murders, that police accidentally stumbled across the major break in their investigation. By then, the fears of a wild killer on the loose had permeated through most of Australia, which updates on, with updates on the case being run in almost every local and national newspaper. So this was a huge case yeah. back then. 
On that day, police in the state of Queensland, yeah, QPS, noticed a distinctive... Q- QBS? QPS. Okay. <laughs> Queensland Police Service, up there. Um, blah, 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 blah. Queensland noticed a distinctive DeSoto vehicle bearing license plates from South Australia. Those plates were recorded as having outstanding finance and registration notices, so the officers pulled the car over. The man driving the car gave them a false name, and when they challenged him about it, he told them it was because he was avoiding being chased by the tax department, which is a real fear. I understand why he did it. That's my fear in life too, the tax department. Well, my thing is when I see plates, like plates from other states, like Victoria, New South Wales or Mm -hmm. somewhere, I'm just like, what are you doing here? (laughs) Go home. (laughs) Go home. Yeah, what are you doing here? Um, So... uh, but the officers thought that there was more to his story and mm. they decided to search his car. Yeah. During the search, they found an unlicensed handgun and they also noticed a tow hitch on the back of the vehicle. The man explained that his wife and young child were staying in their caravan just outside of town. The man was taken into custody for questioning regarding the unlicensed gun and after questioning, he finally gave up his real name and he identified himself as mm. Raymond Bailey. Ray- yep. Right. <laughs> Paying attention, Phil. Yep. By now, the name Raymond Bailey was familiar throughout police departments across the country due to the unsolved and brutal murders of Wendy, Sally and Thomas more Mm. than a month earlier. To keep him in custody while investigators tried to piece together his involvement in the sundown murders, as they had come to be known, Raymond was charged with giving false information and for being in possession of an unlicensed weapon. While he was held in custody, officials from Adelaide travelled across the country to Queensland to question Raymond about the murders. So... Raymond had an interesting story to tell. Well, four interesting stories, as it turned out. When asked about his whereabouts on the night of the murder on the 5th of December 1957, Raymond told detectives that he was indeed travelling north on the Stewart Highway when he saw the campsite that the victims had set up. He said that he had stopped and spoken to Sally Bowman, who was travelling with a younger girl and a young man. Raymond claimed that she had invited him as well as his wife and daughter to join them for dinner. However, he had politely turned down Sally's offer of a meal and he continued on his journey, leaving the trio alive and well behind him. He then drove a short distance up the road before parking his vehicle for the night and setting off again in the morning. Mm. Story one. Yes. But later on, he had an entirely different story to tell. In the second version of events, Raymond repeated that he had parked a short distance up the road for the night. After dinner, he decided to go for a walk and he had taken his rifle with him for protection against wildlife. During his evening stroll, Raymond stumbled upon the family where they were sleeping next to the campfire that they had built. Raymond claimed that one of the Bowman's dogs had lunged at him and barked at him. Startled, Raymond opened fire at the dog. After that, he blacked out and he couldn't remember what happened next, but he was sure that the trio were alive and well when he drove away the next morning. So you kill a dog, blank out and drive away? Well, he says in this version of the story that the dog tried to jump at him. So he shot the dog, he blacked out, but he's pretty sure that, that everyone was alive when he drove past the next morning. But he doesn't know because okay. he blacked out. Yeah. It's a story too. Yeah. <laughs> However, later... Is this like different interrogation processes? Yeah. Okay. Keeps switching it up. 
So later in the investigation, Raymond would change his story again, this time when he was questioned by the lead detective in the case, Glenn Patrick Hallahan. Raymond told Glenn that he had parked, gone for a stroll, taken the gun, been lunged, lunged at by the dog, shot the dog, and then, this is where his story changes, Thomas had confronted him with Wendy's, is it point twenty two gun? Oh no, yeah, twenty two rifle. Twenty two rifle gun. Thomas had accidentally shot himself with the gun and then Raymond had blacked out and panicked. He had shot the two women when they had gotten up to fight him as well as hitting Sally in the head with the butt of his rifle. When he came to his senses, he realised what he had done and he ran away from the camp. The following morning, he went back to the scene and tried to cover up the murders. He dragged the bodies further into the bush, he moved the car to hide it from the road and he tried to clean up the area. Okay, so he's just... He's confessed now in that third story. Sort of, yeah. So he said that Thomas accidentally shot himself. Thomas just shot himself. Okay. Mm -hmm. And then the girls have come running to see what's going on. And he's he's... just shot them in a panic. Mm -hmm. Does anything from what I've just told you, like spider senses tingle? Because they were shot in the back of the head. Mm, Interesting. Okay. So when he returned in the morning... He found the two dogs tied up to the tree and tried to let them go, but was attacked by one of them. This prompted him to shoot both of the dogs and then discard their bodies behind the camp. Raymond said he had taken 25 pounds from Thomas's body, but had later thrown the money away. Yeah. Like, why, why would he do that? Why would he, like, if Thomas accidentally shot himself, why is he even touching Thomas? Yeah. And, like, why is he going through his pockets and mm. stealing his money? Yeah. He claimed that his wife had no idea what he had done and he hadn't heard the shots that night, or she hadn't heard the shots that night. As for the gun, Raymond told the investigator that he had gotten rid of the rifle when he arrived in Alice Springs in a further attempt to cover cover up what he had done. Raymond insisted that he did not mean to kill Thomas and that it was all an accident. However, he had fired at Sally and Wendy to stop them from reporting him to the authorities. His confession reads as follows. Mm -hmm. These are his words. I saw the three people lying down. I heard a noise behind me when I was passing through the camp and was just about to get through it and I turned around and fired. I did not see if it was, but it sounded like a dog growling. When I fired, a chap jumped up and made a noise and fell down again. I thought I'd killed him and I just went mad after that. When I did this, I thought I would have to kill the lot and cover up. The young girl and the woman rushed towards me. That was when I moved over to see if the chap was dead. I loaded my rifle again and aimed it at the older woman who was rushing towards me and fired. She fell down straight away. The young girl ran at me too, so I loaded again, aimed it and shot her. She fell down too. I don't know how many times I shot them. I just went mad. I put the three bodies in the Vanguard car together and in the back and put all the canvas and blankets and other stuff that I could find around the camp with them. Then I drove the Vanguard car into the scrub on the other side of the road and went into a fairway and emptied the back of all of the bodies and blankets and canvas. I laid the bodies out and put the canvas and blanket over them as well as everything else that was there. So based on the confession, Raymond was charged with the murder of Sally Bowman, Wendy Bowman and Thomas Whelan. Detectives applied for an extradition order to transport him to Adelaide to answer for the murder charges. The request was approved and the police commissioner arranged for the Royal Australian Air Force to supply a freighter aircraft to the transport to transport Raymond to Adelaide. Mm -hmm. The aircraft also transported Raymond's wife and daughter as well as his car and caravan which had been in police custody since his arrest. Raymond pleaded not guilty to all of the charges against him. 
The prosecution's case was largely, largely circumstantial and involved witnesses testifying that Raymond owned a gun matching the one that was used during the murder. But interestingly, a police photographer and fingerprint expert who testified in the case reported that none of the fingerprints at the scene matched Raymond's. Various items had been examined, including in the victim's car, an alarm clock, the faulty Remington rifle that had belonged to Wendy, and a spaghetti tin, and all were not a match for Raymond. Another discrepancy in the prosecution's case was that the car then that had been reportedly seen around the crime scene on the night of the murders had identified as a grey Ford Zephyr. At the time, Raymond had been driving the black 1938 DeSoto, which is what he was driving when he was pulled over a month later. Mm-hmm. Investigators also believed that a female had driven away from the scene as the Aboriginal trackers had identified female footprints leading away from the campsite. However, Raymond's wife didn't know how to drive. So despite these contradictions, it took the jury just 96 minutes to reach their verdict. Raymond Bailey was found guilty of three counts of murder. In his address to the jury, the Crown Prosecutor, Mr. E.B. Scarf, said that the evidence had proved that Raymond was guilty of a particularly brutal and callous murder. He said that what really happened that night might never be known, given Raymond's varying versions of events, but that it was likely Raymond had held up the Bowmans and Whelan at gunpoint and demanded money for petrol. He Mm -hmm. concluded by saying, "'Petrol is deer up in the neck of the woods.'" And Bailey's old car and caravan would not be doing more than 10 or 12 miles to the gallon. If Bailey wasn't the killer, what a series of fantastic, amazing and incredible coincidences. Raymond was sentenced to be executed at the Adelaide Jail. He He unsuccessfully attempted to appeal his sentence. However, he did manage to get a stay of execution by claiming that he wasn't responsible for the murders. Here is where the fourth and final version of events was presented by Raymond. All right. Fourth story. He claimed that he had gone for his stroll and he had stumbled across a robbery in progress at the Bowman campsite. He asserted that he was actually a victim in all of this and that he had killed the real murderer in self-defense. He had then buried the killer's body four miles away from the campsite. As a result of this claim, Raymond was flown back to the scene and given the opportunity to prove his latest version of events. But after three and a half hours of searching, nobody was found and Raymond said to the police, I have nothing more to say. Crazy. With the stay withdrawn, Raymond's execution was scheduled for the 24th of June, 1958. The day before his execution, Raymond was visited by two of his brothers at the Adelaide Jail, This was the first contact that he had with his family since the day he was arrested for murder back in January of that year. Raymond was executed by hanging at 8am the following morning. Damn. That might have been the end of the story if not for one final twist. Oh shit. Oh shit. So but he's already dead? He's dead. He was executed. Okay. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He didn't do it. (laughs) You're on the edge of your seat. Yeah, what happened? So more than 50 years after the murders, an author and investigative journalist by the name of Stephen Bishop claimed that there were severe issues with the initial investigation. He claimed that Detective Glenn Patrick Hallahan had lied under oath during Raymond's trial and that he had forged records of police interviews regarding Raymond's case. One of those interviews was Raymond's alleged confession and Stephen was sure that Raymond was wrongfully convicted for the murders. Wow. 
The evidence Stephen referred to as proof of his claim was that Raymond's supposed confession didn't match up with the evidence of how the victims had died. Raymond's confession describing having Wendy and Sally when they ran away from him, but their autopsies showed that they were killed while lying on the ground. Mm. Then there was the fact that the men's footprints that were found on the scene came from shoes that were estimated to be a size 7 to 8 or even a 10. However, Raymond's took a size 5 and a half shoe. If he couldn't get that size, he would wear a size 6. What the hell? What's up? Is this, is this a little man? That's just, no one I know, grown-ass man, wears a size 5 or 6 unless they had different sizes back then. I think the sizes have just changed since Shit. then. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, there were the mismatches in the type of vehicle witnesses saw on the highway that night and the vehicle Raymond was known to have driven. Then there was the confession itself. It was taken from Raymond after many long days of questioning and it seemed to be an abrupt change from I'm not involved to I committed multiple acts of murder. Was Raymond influenced to change his statement? There are other causes for concern around the circumstances of his confession. Raymond even started stated during his trial that he only signed the confession when he heard his wife and child crying in the room next to him. He testified that Detective Hallahan had asked him, do you love your wife? And when Raymond replied saying that he did, he was told to sign the confession and that they would leave her alone. Despite this evidence and more, the government refused to re-examine the case. However, in a governmental investigation into corruption inside the police force during the 1980s, Detective Hallahan was identified as a corrupt cop. Damn. The investigation oh, revealed how officers had used fraudulent evidence to gain convictions in multiple cases. In 2013... Just to close the case. Mm-hmm. In 2013, Stephen appealed to the state governor to have Raymond's conviction reversed and have him be granted a posthumous pardon. I know I've just slaughtered that word. I'm so sorry. What does that mean? The appeal was denied. It means basically like they pardon his like sentence to like basically say like he was wrongfully accused, imprisoned. Detective Hallahan died in 2016, taking the truth of what had happened to his grave. Scum. And that is all we know on the Sundown Murders. Fuck. So we actually, we don't know if old mate actually did it, if he, what he could have actually been trying to stop a... I don't think um, that that is true. Like... It's so hard because when you read the story, you're like, oh, it, like this all kind of makes sense. But like, why did he have four different stories? Like, mm. and then when it says like he was questioned for like hours and days on end and then like his wife and child are crying in the next room. You hear all the time about cases of people giving wrongful convictions because they're just exhausted and they just mm. want to get out of that room and they think that the only way out is just to say, yes, I did it, and they don't really think about the consequences following that. Like they think if I, I just say, yes, I did it, I can get out of this room and then I can be like, actually, no, I didn't, but that's not how it works. Like yeah. once you say yes and you sign that statement, that confession, like that's it. But when you're so tired and you're exhausted and then you have that emotion of your wife and child crying next door. Like, if you put yourself in that scenario. I wonder if they ever spoke to the wife and, like, the wife to be like, if like, if that's the type of person he was. Like, if there was any more, you know how we go into a little bit more background and sometimes of mm. the, the killers? Like, yeah. there was no, I just, yeah, that sucks that it's still unknown. Yeah, he could have done it, but did he really do it? Or if he did, why didn't he just tell the truth? Well, I, that's it. I think that's the question is like, 
yeah, he confessed in three different ways with three different stories, Mm -hmm. but none of them line up with how Wendy and Thomas and Sally died. Like they, it says like in the um, autopsy, like they were shot on the ground, like face down on the ground, execution style. Yeah. And not one of his stories match that. Yeah. Mm. So it's like, I don't, I don't know. I actually don't know. the stories do not pull over and camp on the side of the road in the highway. That's just what people did back then. Like it was very common for people to do that. And people today still just pull over and camp on the side of the road for long drives. Catching me camping windows up, doors locked. That's not going to stop a rifle. Keen the ignition ready to go. This is why I only go to hotels and I don't camp. Mm, well, that one was different. Yeah, really gruesome. I mean, not that gruesome. Really sad. Mm. I couldn't imagine. I'm trying to like imagine you. Dead? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, no, like being in an interrogation room for like days on end. Oh, yeah. And then, then like threatening like me and like your child. Yeah. Like you, you probably would just give it up. You'd give a, like anything for that. I was just trying to imagine me getting on a plane and you getting in a car with my that mate. That would never happen. Yeah. That is that is the biggest question. Why is the wife not on the plane? Why don't they all get on the plane? That's what, anyway. Because well, someone needed to drive the car and the two dogs back. Oh. And obviously back then plane tickets were more expensive. Mm. They didn't have much money. She only had $85 like cash on her. Yeah. You know? But anyway, that was... Today's episode, I hope you guys liked it. I'd love to hear what you think, whether you think Raymond was guilty or not guilty. Just go and head to our socials, our Instagram page, tell me darling pod and let us know. Um, and make sure you subscribe to our Spotify and leave a review because once these, so we're going to drop three episodes all at one time so you guys can binge them. And then on our fourth episode or fifth episode, we might start doing review of the week. Phil can do that and take the lead on that one, which is very exciting. Um, but yeah, make sure you go and give our socials a like. And if you're watching on YouTube, then subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment as well. But we will catch you guys in the next episode. That's it. Bye. <laughs> mm.